Hey everybody, thank you for joining us for today's episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Today we have Tucker Merrihu with TTM Development and he flew in from Portland, Oregon talk about how he's done hundreds of flips and new construction including making just 800K on one property last year. If this is your first time tuning in, I'm Steve Trang, founder of the Offer Fast Homes app, the only MLS for off-market wholesale properties, and I'm on a mission to create 100 millionaires. If you guys have been following me on social media, then you know that we just finished building out a classroom. We're holding sales training and masterminds there. Uh, if you want to close more deals, please apply at disruptors.com to see if the class would be a good fit for you. If you get value today, please tag a friend below, share this episode right now, that way we can all grow together. And this is a live show, so please ask your questions for Tucker to answer. You ready? Let's do it. All right, so first question is, what got you into real estate? Well, let's dial back that time machine, shall we? Because we just dated ourselves on our pre-conversation here. <laughs> um, so let's wrap, let's pretend it was 2002. And if anybody remembers, it was right after this thing called the dot-com bust, right? Mm -hmm. And there wasn't a whole lot of jobs available for uh, people to get. And I had had an apparel company in college that I, th I thought for a while that was gonna be, you know, how I get rich, right? And this apparel company was gonna take off and it was gonna be the thing we did after college. Well, it didn't, it imploded and it wasn't really profitable. So I had to figure imploded. out- Well, everybody kind of, drifted away, right? Mm -hmm. And it, I was left with a bank account with a few hundred bucks in it and a little bit of leftover products. And okay. um, so what do you do, right? Right. Um, so initially I thought about maybe getting a job that didn't really pan out for various reasons. Um, then there was this thing called a newspaper that we used to have back then. Um, and there was this guy named Robert Allen, I think that it was, that had a, an ad in the paper. And I remember my mom sent it to me. She was like, you gotta see this. The guy says he'll make you a millionaire in a year if you go to this uh, you know, training, right? And I was like, well, I mean, sounds like a good idea, right? I right. was 22 and broke and you know, wanted to be a millionaire. So that was really the beginning. Um, I went to that, but at the same time, um, that I didn't become a millionaire overnight and I didn't do deals overnight. So I had to kind of fill the gap with how do I actually generate an income in real estate uh, before this investing thing actually kicks off or, or works for me. And so I ended up uh, in the mortgage game from there. But uh, ultimately it started with uh, a newspaper clipping that my mom sent me. That so you went to a seminar? I went to a seminar, yeah. But then you went and became a loan officer. Then I went and became a dirty, grimy loan <laughs> officer back in well, the day. That's not what they taught at the seminar. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> not what they taught at the seminar. You know what I liked at the seminar, actually, that, that caught my attention, uh, but then I realized I couldn't do it, were tax liens, right? But mm -hmm. you needed money to buy them, and so there was that whole money piece that I didn't have. But right. I remember that was the first thing I heard that was like, that's pretty cool. And of course, they, they tell you the pie in the sky version, right? You know, mm -hmm. you can make like 24% on like, you know, whatever the tax lien amount is you buy, and that uh, was, remember adding it up in my head and I was like, man, that seems like a good idea. But yeah. there was that whole money thing in between. So. so what compelled you to go into being a loan officer? So the loan officer thing was also a, a uh, an ad in the paper, right? And so there was a place, I don't know if I should say the name because it might get me, I don't want to get sued uh, putting this out into the world. Mm. But there was a place on uh, the boulevard, uh, McLaughlin Boulevard in Portland. It was actually in Milwaukee and it was a big black building for anybody that's familiar with that area that's watching the show. And they put an ad out and uh, they basically, their model was recruit as many loan officers as they could, right? And so they thought, they, they basically ran a, um, 
a training facility in the back of their building, right? And so they train everybody up and they thought that, you know, everybody would finance basically their friends and family before they failed out of the business. And so you'd get like under five loans done, but they'd met, they'd match you up with a mentor. That mentor would tell you you needed to jack your fees up and then they'd get 50%. So it was like a 50% split for your Sadly, first five years. that's a very still common business model. Yeah, yeah, it was. Except for this place was filled with Pimps, felons, drugs, all kinds of, you know, early mortgage days stuff, right? Yeah. Um, so it was quite the learning experience on many fronts for me um, when I went there. But basically what happened is I responded to an ad. I went and got trained there. Um, hold, I stuck. Um, I did my first five loans and then I did a bunch more. And it was a challenging time because I was 22, 23, and I was trying to get people to entrust me to basically finance their biggest assets, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was a bit of an uphill slug, but um, I got it to stick and uh, I kind of made it through there. And eventually, let's see, I stayed there for like a year and a half. And then um, one of the good friends that I made there started his own company, um, which he started because we were kind of sick of what was going on there in terms of just all the extracurricular stuff. Well, his kind place- like uh, Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, it was very Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, there are so many stories I could tell you. There was one time, um, <laughs> there was a guy, whose wife was a processor for the company, right? And they were kind of on the fritz, so that processor decided to have a relationship with another loan officer there. And this guy named Larry Capri, who was the soon-to-be ex-husband of this processor, flipped out, and he got a gun, and he sat across the street on this grassy knoll, and he had the high-powered rifle pointed at the shop. And I remember walking up front, and somebody grabbed me, they're like, Larry's across the street with a rifle, dive! And so we all dove on the ground, cops came, and Larry went to jail for a long time. Um, but yeah, it was very Wolf of Wall Street. That's yeah. just one of the stories, uh, still. It's crazy that uh, he did that, but uh, yeah. there, there were a lot of other stuff too that was more, um, you know, drugs and party and all that. So it was, it was an interesting experience. So we let he, my buddy John, started his own company, and he wanted to kind of leave some of that behind. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, his company ultimately turned into a smaller version of that, and so I was there for a while. And he's a good guy, and there's nothing bad to say about him. It just, you know, it was just kind of the nature of the beast back then for those companies. It's just what they were. Yeah. So then I started my own company um, about a year and a half later. Um, and so that was like 2006-ish. Um, and so TTM Finance was my first real estate company that I had of my own. And that was a mortgage company. We were licensed in Oregon and Washington. And so I had, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 loan officers that worked for me. And I kind of ran this, this company. And that was my first adventure into the world of managing people, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, before it was just about sales and making money. And it was still about sales and making money, but now I had audits and license and management and um, overhead and, and all these things. And so, you know, I was in my mid to late 20s and basically just kind of blind man in a dark room trying to figure out how to run this thing called a business um, right. while I was in this world of real estate. So that was that was how I started. And then from there, I always had that, that draw towards um, the investing side. And when I first got into the mortgage business, I bought my first house within three months. And um, back then it was crazy to think about it, but you could get 100% financing if you had a 700 credit score, right? Mm -hmm. I was three months out of college, working at a place for three months, didn't have to state length of employment. That was when a lot of people that don't, don't know now, but I mean, it wasn't until like 2008 or nine, you could get your down payment as a concession. Yeah, you could. <laughs> and there was even 
like real crazy stuff going yeah. on where like I won't even go into it. But yeah, there was you could do all kinds of things. And so I mean, now looking at it from a developer perspective, I was like, man, if we could get loans like that now to buy stuff that then we sit on and hold at these you know relatively close to market rates before we develop it out. I mean, it'd be an amazing program. Um, but they don't exist right now. Right. So, um, but that was back then. So three months into getting into the mortgage game, I bought my first house. And that was kind of my first taste of like the actual investment side. And I, I ended up selling that house about two and a half years after buying it. And I made about 200 grand and that was just pure luck really. I mean, I finished out the basement. I rented out a room down there. I rented out the main floor room. My mortgage payment was like 12 or 1300 bucks a month. I was bringing in a thousand bucks a month from rent you know, living for virtually free. It was a great deal. Yeah. But then I, you know, the market went crazy, you know, end of 04, 05, 06. And so I sold that place in 06 before the market started to collapse. Great timing. Um, very fortuitous timing. I got lucky there and uh, made about 200 grand. But um, that was, and then that basically was kind of house money to kind of run with um, and kind of, you know, get into more flip stuff eventually moving forward. But that was kind of my, my stash um, that I could work from. And you were, I, ma I imagine you were, Killing it on the mortgage side. Yeah, we were doing good in the mortgage side too. And um, then, and then there was a let's see, a day August two thousand seven when. Oh, it's not dramatic at all. You remember not, the exact day? Yeah, <laughs> I still remember the office I was sitting in, which had it was uh, our at our old space, wood paneling all around it, and I was talking to somebody like I was talking to this. My phone kept ringing, kept ringing, and it was all the wholesale banks we were hooked up with, and it was like call after call of we're freezing your pipeline, we can't fund these loans. Well, do you know when you can? Don't know. And then, you know, there used to be a site called, I think it was like mortgageimplosion.com, which showed like all the banks that were going out. Like mm -hmm. once New Century went out of business, it was like, oh my God, because they, they own the subprime world. And like, they had so much money. That was money. before Lehman Brothers went down. Before, yeah. Um, Lehman was after that, I believe. And um, so anyway, that day in 2007 changed everything. And so I limped along until early 2008, just trying to pick up the pieces and figure out how you close these transactions that most of which couldn't be closed. But by the time early 2008 came around, um, I was like, man, this business is just not fun anymore. And, and for a variety of reasons. And so ultimately it was a blessing in disguise because we were doing well on the mortgage side. And so mm -hmm. it's, as you know, like running multiple businesses, it's hard to step away from one that's paying you to go full bore into another one that's not built out yet, right? And so it was, a, although I wanted to, it was very difficult to step away from that and yeah. do it and change the heading of the ship and go purely into the house flipping world, um, which back then I, I wasn't gonna be a developer and build houses, I just wanted to flip houses. But that, that helped make the decision for me. And so by mid 2008, um, I just said, you know what, I'm putting all my efforts into actually flipping houses as opposed to um, originating loans and dealing with you know everything that has to do with uh, owning a business and a, and a loan shop. And so that was kind of the beginning of, of flipping houses. And, and back then, it was all REOs, short sales, um, eventually foreclosure auctions. It was a very different world than it is now. Right. So a lot of people that listen to the show, they predominantly fall into one of two. I mean, you got, you got your wholesalers, you got your flippers, and we got some people that are also lenders but predominantly it's wholesalers and flippers. Now we had talked about this beforehand. Mm -hmm. You didn't wholesale, you wanna explain why? Yeah, so let's break down the first deal that I did in 2008. Um, 
after we kind of change the heading of the ship and you'll understand completely, right? Mm -hmm. So it was a deal that, um, your classic REO deal, right? Been on the market 90 plus days. Um, they had dropped the price a couple of times. It just looked like a squishy deal, right? It had checked all the boxes data-wise. Um, it also had some water damage in the crawl space and there was some mold. And, and back then there was an ebook called Mold is Gold, you know, an REO purchasing guide ebook, yeah. uh, which I bought by the way. And, it, and I, you know, it did have some good information in it, but um, it was listed at like 159 or something like that. And we made an offer at 130 and they accepted the offer. And I was like, oh, okay. Then we did our inspection and we found a bunch of water under the house, which kind of scared me at the time because- Water wa under the house. Water under the house. Remember we live in Portland, right? Okay. Rains a lot. There was a, it needed sump pumps under the house, to pump the water out, but there okay. were no sump pumps. And so that water just sat and pooled under the house because we don't build on slab here. We have crawl spaces underneath. Mm. And so that water and moisture created mold under the house. Um, so it, it was a big issue, which kind of scared me a little bit back then. So what did I do during my inspection period? Well, I lowered my offer price. I think it was down to like 101 or something. So big reduction, which was kind of like my out to be like, I'm not going to buy this house. Mm -hmm. And then I still remember I was walking out of Club Sport, which is where I'd go play hoops. And I got a text message back then, which it was kind of new, but you could get text messages back yeah. then from my agent. He was like, they took it. And I was like <laughs> excited and kind of scared at the same time, right? Because it was right. like, okay, I guess we're, we're going to do this one, right? And so the first thing that I did- and This is the first flip. The first flip post stepping away from the mortgage company, right? Yeah. And so the first thing that I did was like, well, we got an amazing deal. I could wholesale it, right? So I put up ads, I called everybody I knew, nobody was buying. Everybody was scared of real estate back then. It was, the bottom had yet to be found. We were in a, almost a free fall, and I know in Phoenix here, it, it fell for a while even mm -hmm. after that, but we were in a, a free fall in terms of people's perception of the market. And even though in Portland, we didn't really fall much farther than where we were right then, people's perception was that they didn't know where the bottom was. And so nobody wanted to buy. And so that's what we found. It was like, okay, we have a great product here at a great wholesale price, but the market disappeared. And so that forced um, us into, or me, into basically putting up my own money, because by the way, hard money companies weren't really around back then either, in, yeah. in Portland anyway. Um, the first one in Portland is a good friend of mine now, but it didn't start till later in 2009. And so I was like, well, I got 160 grand in the bank. Um, I'm gonna fund it, let's so do it. So you self-funded your own deal. Yeah, I self-funded my own deal. And we ended up rehabbing it in about two months, I think, um, put it on the market at 199 and we ended up selling it uh, like a week later. And um, that was proof of concept that the retail market was actually fairly strong for entry-level turnkey product when the wholesale market was non-existent. Yeah, got it. So then after that deal, then what? So then after that, it was kind of the proof of concept of, okay, we, know how to buy REOs, right? And so we just started combing the RMLS um, or the MLS, whatever you want to call it, and uh, basically looking for REOs that were beat up, like the people left pissed, right? P punched mm -hmm. holes in the walls, ripped doors off. Um, yeah, there was all kinds of stuff that happened back then. It was crazy, right? Yeah, missing kitchen. Uh, missing kitchens. Hammer uh, every inch throughout the house. Yeah, <laughs> spray painting lovely obscenities all over the uh -huh. walls on their way out. Um, so we'd look for stuff on market that had been sitting for a while, and usually about 90 days was kind of the threshold that we determined where the banks would get pretty squishy. Mm -hmm. um, if you offered before that, you'd play a lot of back and forth and you'd never really get your price. So we, we scanned the MLS and we offered on everything that looked beat up, been on the market 90 plus days. Um, I also got to know every REO agent in town that was like a bigger player. There was some one-off people, but there was probably five or six that listed most of the inventory. Mm -hmm. 
they never picked up their phone by the way it was like getting a hold of them was the <laughs> hardest thing ever but um like we were talking about before this if you could sit down with them have a beer with them um you know kind of bro down face to face it was like game over they'd call yeah. you on every one moving forward so we did a lot of that and that served us well also um, but that's that's where we started kind of going full steam into finding distressed inventory that we could buy uh, fix up and flip got it at that time did you enjoy flipping are you you get good taste the, the connections it was a it was rough um i mean get it you we talked about it on the way over here get building out that side of your business is is not always enjoyable mm -hmm. like it's it's like it's herky jerky it's back and forth you're dealing with you know jerk off contractors you're dealing with, dealing with gcs that maybe overcharge under deliver don't pick up their phone tell you what you want to hear i mean there, there's a lot of that so like yeah. we went through um a couple of gcs that kind of ran our jobs initially and we had that same experience uh, that it, it just wasn't a great one. And so that's when I decided to get my own GC license because at that point, we're just a manager of construction, right? We'd still call in subcontractors and bring them in to do a lot of the trade work, but I would hold the license. And then I had to hire like a couple of in-between labor guys to do all the in-between labor stuff, cleanups, demo, things like that. And so, you know, shortly thereafter, I hired um, my brother-in-law uh, who worked for me for a while and a whole bunch of other people that just kind of cycled through that job. I mean, it's a low level, you know, job. Yeah. Um, so it didn't have a lot of longevity, but yeah, we hired a couple of in-between labor guys and I got my GC license. And then that really allowed me to enjoy it more uh, because we then had control of the process. And then we started to build the relationships with the subcontractors and that just, it just made the business a lot easier. We weren't beholden or reliant on somebody else and their numbers and their schedule um, to get deals done. For someone that's listening right now that's interested in, in, in transitioning from wholesaling to flipping, what advice would you give them as far as, you know, getting the, the tradesmen and so on? I think, I mean, I think there are good GCs that you can find. Um, I think the biggest hang up that investors have is that we're cheap in mm -hmm. by nature, right? It's just, it's something in our DNA. We want to be a real estate investor. We're just cheap asses. That's just the way we are. Mm -hmm. um, only on flips. Only on flips. Yeah. I mean, that's true. That's <laughs> they're, a good point. they're willing to spend whatever on marketing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's true. But then yeah. flips, they don't want. So like finding the cheapest GC, you're going to get cheapest GC problems, right? So, I mean, but you also don't want the guy that's doing, you know, luxury homeowner remodels either. So I think finding kind of an in-between guy, um, Finding somebody that's younger, I think younger's key because uh, they, they're still hungry, right? They're not burned out and crusty. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't want the cheapest guy, you don't want the oldest guy. I, there are guys out there like that. Um, you know, one guy that ran project management for my company for years, uh, he went out and started his own GC company. And like, you know, a guy like him would be a good fit for kind of a flipper starting out that maybe is gonna segue from wholesaling to doing some flips. Yeah. Um, but you gotta find that relationship because then that gives you the confidence too, right? Um, Cause that's one of the main reasons people don't get into flipping from wholesaling is they just don't have the confidence in the support, the numbers, the timeline. Um, it's just all kind of this big gray area, right? Yeah. Of like, well, that's, and that's exactly <clears> my experience <throat> right now. Uh, that's the, you know, we're, we're flipping. I, I, I shared with you earlier, we're reluctant flippers. We're right. flipping because there's just more money there. I'd rather wholesale. Yeah. But it's hard to say no to those margins. It is. I think now, like, we're in such a hot time, right? Like, what's your inventory here in Phoenix? Like, sub one month or? or... Uh, it's like 1.2 months <laughs> yeah. supply. It's crazy, right? So, like, 
now there's this new market called wholetailing, right? Mm-hmm. There's like the in-between market, which also is very difficult to do in a down market, by the way. Oh, yeah. um, you got to go all the way or not at all, right? Yeah. And not at all is hard sometimes too. Um, but in a super hot market, we have 1.3 months of inventory in Portland right now. There is this thing where you can buy a dated, slightly you know beat up looking house, maybe just paint it, carpet it, put it back on the market and sell it at 95, 96 cents on the dollar. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the path of least resistance, I think, for a lot of people that maybe want to make that jump. Not all product can go there, right? Like some product is just blown out. You can't do anything with it other than fully rehab it. But if it's livable with paint, carpet, and a cleaning, um, you know, maybe you just go light, right? And, yeah. and maybe that's the kind of bridge to flipping, right? You start there. Um, because the last thing you want to do is get into like 100K, your first flip is 100K remount, right? Where you're moving walls, repiping the whole house, new electrical, you got foundation issues, mm-hmm. roof, you're resetting windows, maybe you got to move windows. For, you know, there's <laughs> there's just so much that can go wrong because you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. So <laughs> you're flipping for a while. What was the first business you created in this journey? The first business, uh, I think the day that I opened it was, I don't know, uh, maybe like February 2008, something like that. And it was, um, I initially named it TTM Capital Funding um, because I I had visions of, I was a money guy before, right? I was in the mortgage game. So I was going to raise a bunch of money and we were going to use that money to deploy it to buy real estate. And so, you know, I was like, well, that name makes sense. But then um, we ended up being more in the, you know, sticks and bricks side than the money side. So eventually I filed a DBA. So it, the company now is the same company, but we call it TTM Development. Mm-hmm. And that was the first company that I started post mortgage company that still is around to this day. It's our flagship company um, yeah. that basically buys and, and sells houses. But then you eventually branched off and built additional businesses. I did. So what's the bus- next business after that? So the next business after that, let's see. Um, well, we started a podcast. That mm-hmm. was probably the next thing, which, you know, bear in mind that was 2014. That's so really early for podcasts. It was like Sean Terry, um, Bigger Pockets. Um, God, who else? There was a couple other early adopter guys that have since gone. Yeah. You know, real estate guys. I think. Yeah, real estate guys. Um, there. I mean, some of the flagships are still there, but like I was like the 20th episode on BP or something like that. And I still remember recording that show with, uh, you know, Josh and Brandon and they were like, I hope people are listening, you know? And and (laughs) (laughs) so it's funny, it's a trip kind of thinking back on all that. But, you know, we started a show um, then and that was, initially it was just a show, right? It was kind of giving back, it cost us money. I hired Dan who works um, in the office with me now, still does seven Mm -hmm. years later, um, because I needed somebody to produce it. Like we're in the studio here. I was like, well, I want a podcast, but I don't know how to produce it, right? right?" I was like, Dan, can you figure out this (laughs) whole like iTunes thing and like how we, you know, how do we edit the sound and all that? I imagine it would've been a lot harder back then too. It was, it was difficult, Um, but he did a great job. And so that was not a business initially, but it was um, us creating content, right? Mm -hmm. And so we did that and then it basically acted like a business though, because it costed money and, you know, needed human capital and needed skill sets. And then we created an online mastermind group that was attached to that. And that was our first business um, kind of attached to the the content education side, which was nice because it helped backfill a lot of the costs of production. Um, But then we also, you know, we were able to build that and it's still around today. And, you know, it hovers around 125 members, something like that. So that, that was the next business uh, attached to a business, right? It's kind of funny because we were talking about earlier, three of you people in your program are also in my program. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's a lot of cross-pollination yeah. in this business, a lot. Yeah, okay, so then after that? Let's see, after that, so a lot of um, what we did to find deals post like REO World um, was basically driving neighborhoods, mm-hmm. right? And that was, 
you know, we basically drove specific neighborhoods that we wanted to be in and we looked for investment grade product. And we had the yellow pad and the pen and paper and it was super archaic, right? But it was normal in 2011, 12, 13. And then in 14, we came up with this idea which seemed like crazy at the time, could you even do it? Um, which was building out what is now our Driving for Dollars app, right? Mm -hmm. Which, you know, there's obviously a lot of people in the marketplace that have similar technologies now, but that was 14, so I mean, we had the first idea, we did yeah. it. Um, you know, there's obviously guys that, you know, have done it as well and props to them, but like that was us actually doing it. And like, this sucks. Like <laughs> I gotta hire somebody then to look up these properties and organize yeah. them after I do it. So that was a long process back then to figure out the tech side of it, the build out. I mean, we hired some really terrible developers that we paid a lot of money. So this is 2014 though? 14 and 15, yeah. Yeah, so it's crazy. So you had a drive for dollars app Yeah. in Wow. Yeah, we tested it within our mastermind in 2015. Yeah. And it was like herky jerky and like, I still remember like whiteboarding out, okay, like here's the API, here's the data place that we gotta pull it from, here's the request, here's the calls. And we drew it all out and they're like, that's pretty wild. But now it's like nothing, right? Yeah. Like it's it's crazy to see how much that data is, you know, or, or how that process and technology's changed. So then that was kind of a herky jerky process and eventually we got it to market um, in 16 um, for the masses. And then, you know, it's it's been kind of a, uh, you know, progress ever since just improving it and, and making it better and whatnot. But that was the next um, business on top of a business on top of a business. Yeah, um, and I'm, we I'm hoping the listeners are, are bearing with me. I'm asking these questions selfishly because I'm kind of going through the similar journey. Yeah, it's and it was challenging, right? Because, um, you know, I've said this before, we were real estate guys entering a tech world. Mm -hmm. We weren't tech guys entering a real estate world. And everybody knows real estate guys are not tech savvy, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we need help with everything. And we've gotten way better over the years, don't get me wrong. But it was really challenging to find the right help, the right people, the right developers, um, all those things. And so it's been a hell of a journey. I mean, building that from scratch multiple times over um, to, you know, obviously having, you know, lots of people that use it all over the country now today. And we still use it every month in our own yeah. business. I mean, during Corona, um, when the initial lockdowns, I was like, well, we got to redo all our lists, right? We got some idle time here. People were, you know, freaking out and nobody's letting us into their houses. So for a month, we redrove all of our areas, um, redid yeah. all of our own lists. Um, so, yeah. That's awesome. So then after the app. After the app, um, the next thing that we started was um, our local show. So um, I was driving in my car one day and I was listening to another podcast. And I don't know if many of you guys listening, wherever you kind of have your like flow moments, right? We're like, I don't usually have them in the office, right? Because mm -hmm. you're dealing with putting out distractions, fires, distractions right? Um, nowadays, whatever it is, right? Social media, uh, employees, whatever. And I was driving and I listened to this guy and he was like, you know, he was thinking about doing a local show, but I don't think he ever did it. And I was like, a local show? That's a good idea. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, well, I could do it, but I'm already the host of one show. It'd be pretty narcissistic of me to want to just host two shows completely. But it's also difficult because then I'd be the only one marketing it. I was like, who else is equally narcissistic that could be good <laughs> behind a microphone that I could get that I know well, right? And I was like, I got just the guy. Yeah. And um, anyway, he's a really nice guy, I'm just playing. But um, he's been my co-host ever since, and he's one of the biggest realtors um, in Portland and one of the owners of the biggest brokerage there in town as well. And he's been a, a fantastic co-host. And so that was our next venture into that world where we basically have built out a community uh, or better brought the community together of, mm -hmm. of real estate investors, agents, title companies, lenders, um, everybody, right? Um, and so that's been a really cool platform to do that. And then that 
although it doesn't pay us um, to do the shows, it's furthered our brand, similar to a lot of stuff that you do here. Um, And so, you know, everybody knows who we are now. They know TTM in Portland and they know me because of that. And obviously the product that we put to market as well, but that's been a great connector. Before we continue, what are the name of those two podcasts or shows? Uh, The Portland Real Estate Podcast is the local show. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the national show that we've had, you know, it's been our flagship show for seven years. It's called The Real Deals Podcast and it's deals with a Z. Yeah. So I think everyone that's listening, there's plenty of opportunity if you're not in Portland to start your own real estate show in your market. I mean, when I had Brandon Turner on my show a few months ago, he was like, I'm starting a Maui one, right? So like, if it passes the sniff test with Brandon, it should pass the sniff test for you guys, right? Right. It's it's a great, but beyond that, yeah, it's fantastic because that's, in my opinion, you know, everybody wants to start a show because they want it to be huge, right? They want Mm -hmm. the whole world to listen. And that's good. I mean, everybody wants to be the next Joe Rogan, but at the same time, there's a lot of value in the niches, right? The niche shows can be very valuable in meeting people, networking, um, you know, doing business, right? And yeah. so local shows, there's a lot of need for that in a, in a lot of markets where you can be the connector, so to speak, of all the different parts of the real estate um, equation. Yep, and there's a guy in Salt Lake City, I can't remember his name right now. I wanna say Rex or something, shoot feel bad now but he's done the same thing in Salt Lake City where he knows like the mayor a lot of the guys in the Utah Jazz have been on the show like it's just yeah and we've had connector we've had you know some Timbers players we've had ex-Blazers um all kinds of things so that was the next thing I mean we've piled a few more things on since then um but before we transition obviously anyone's listening like there's no reason not to start it. Like, no, do it. Go it's, for it. And the other thing that's cool is like, this is an awesome studio, and these guys are fantastic in here. But like, you don't need this to start mm-hmm. it. Like, I mean, you don't. for the first six years of my show, I had C minus class office space <laughs> and a microphone, right? Like, yeah. and it, it worked just fine. And you could even use your phone. Um, you know, obviously, you grow into it, you improve it, you make it better. But you can do it. I mean, the the biggest advice that I'll give you is just get better at your microphone presence. The rest of it doesn't matter. Like yeah. it really doesn't. Like you want a good mic eventually, but like if you're good on the mic and people like listening to you, like that's the like the major skill set that you can improve without like dumping a ton of money into it or, you know, time. Exactly. I mean time maybe but not money. All right. So after real estate podcast or the real estate Portland real estate show. So the next thing was um, you know, we had a we've got our Deal Finders Academy, which is our online mastermind group. Mm-hmm. Um from there, you know, that's a, a one-to-many type model, right? Where, you know, I I work with people as much as I can one-on-one, but it's it's a one-to-many model. That's the way it was based. And, but we had a lot of people that we realized, because our specialty is basically marketing directly to sellers, right? Which is normal now, everybody, you know, that's what you have to do. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I've been doing it for 10 years. We know what works. We're kind of dinosaurs in the fact we do this thing called direct mail, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we know how all the different layering strategies work and we've, we've really perfected most of them, right? In terms of, you know, how to generate leads. And so um, we started a high-end coaching program with myself and uh, one of the guys that was actually one of the original members of our Deal Finders Academy, Justin Silverio, who owns Open Letter Marketing. Mm-hmm. And so we run um, a higher-end program, uh, which is called called the REI Deal Generator Program. And so we have, you know, I don't know, 10 or 15 students right now that we're basically hands-on every week building their marketing machines for them. Wow. So as they step into this world of marketing directly to sellers, it can be a giant bucket you just waste money, right? Mm-hmm. You know, oh, yeah. it, it's, it really can. And so the whole idea behind that program is help them pick the right areas, help them pull the right data, and help them spend the money properly. And that's, that's really a big thing. And, yeah. um, and so that program is, has taken off and we've helped a lot of people. It's been cool though too, because like we talked about in the car over here, like 
you wanted to be a teacher, right? Growing mm-hmm. up and you really enjoy this teaching thing. Like yep. I do too. Like I didn't want to be a teacher. I wanted to be a meteorologist, like I told you. But mm-hmm. uh, this teaching thing is cool, especially when they have success, right? Yeah. Um, then it's very fulfilling. Then it's very fulfilling. It is. And it's awesome to see like, there's a couple guys that um, are in the Seattle area that they just locked in an 80K wholesale deal um, from you know building their marketing machine, marketing, going on appointments, meeting with people, getting them to say yes. Um, and they got 80K out of the deal, yeah. right? And it's like, that's a life changer. That's freaking awesome, you know? Mm-hmm. And then after that? So after that, our last and latest venture um, is a, a cold calling and text marketing management company mm-hmm. um, called Call Magic. Yeah. Um, and so I've got two partners in that, one of which also came from uh, our Deal Finders Academy. So this has been, a, the Deal Finders Academy has been like a, a place for me to meet amazing people that mm-hmm. are also are equally talented. They're just, they weren't as far along on their journey yet, right? And yeah. then as they get farther along, they have aspirations too, and they're smarter than me in some regards, but I'm good at branding and marketing and, and just understanding this world of direct seller. And so, you know, the partnerships work. And so um, Elliot Smith is uh, one of the partners in that. And mm-hmm. then um, Cole uh, Rudd Johnson, who's uh, probably the smartest kid I know that's like 22 years old and he's got a just, you know, he's doing really well, let's put yeah. it that way. Um, so when did your wife start the construction arm? So her, she will will rewind back to when she entered the equation because mm-hmm. there's an, there's one last piece to this business too that she basically runs and so it's important to say that. But in 2009, um, from 2005 to 2009, oh no, I should take that back. 2006 to 2009, she worked for a big builder in Portland, mm-hmm. and she was basically running their custom home division, um, doing a lot of the plans, uh, do, just doing a lot of things for them. But it it, it focused around design, um, floor plans, marketability of homes, things like that, right? Well, 2009, uh, right before we got married, they said, hey, we're cutting your hours to like eight hours a week, right? Which I don't blame them because it was the real estate apocalypse back yeah. then. And so she was like, uh, I, what am I gonna do? And I was like, well, we're going gangbusters trying to buy REOs. Let's try this whole being married and working together thing, right? And uh, which you know it's worked out, but by the way, it's not the easiest feat. Probably right? had some challenges. Yeah, of course. Um, and you know, for those people that do it with their wives, you know, virtual high five, right? It's, yeah. it's tough. It, it can be a challenge, but we've we've learned what we're both good at, and the best advice I can give you is just figure out what your lane is and just stay in it, and that mm-hmm. that really helps. But she then came on and helped with um, all of our project management, construction management, and our design. And so that enabled me to do a lot of the other things we just talked about, but also then focus my time on the sticks and bricks company with acquisition and finance, right? I line them up, I figure out where the money comes from, make sure that we buy them, I plug them into the machine, and then the machine you know, on the other end pops out a great retail product, which mm-hmm. you know, she gets the majority of the credit for. All right. Um, one of the things that we talked about uh, earlier on the way here was the difference on a luxury home it's not dollars per square foot. If you're talking dollars per square foot, you're an amateur, mm-hmm. right? There's some things that are really important. You wanna talk about how, what those important things are and how your wife plays a part in that. Yeah, it's, I mean, most people are kind of scared of the high-end market, right? Uh, me included. Yeah, and for good reason. Um, but the things that, that really separate a house high-end-wise is design finishes, floor plan, and the lot. You know, if the lots, it has to be an A plus lot, the floor plan has to be right, and the design has to be quote unquote in vogue, right? Mm-hmm. And you can't have any missteps there, right? No uba tuba granite in a new high end house. Like, 
you do it, you're going to get punished, right? Yeah. And those dollars per foot, you know, you could have a 5,000 square foot house, like we talked about on the way over here, that sells for two and a half million, or you can have a 5,000 square foot house that sells for five million. Mm -hmm. And the only difference is the floor plan, the finishes, and the lot. That's it. Yeah. But the appraiser looks at it and, you know, it could be, they're like, well, how is that possible, right? And it's, mm. they just, they don't understand, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of missteps that you can make in that high-end market, but once you figure that out, it's really not as risky as you think because selling our high-end product is the easiest product we sell. Really? Yeah, selling our low-end product, such a bigger pain in the ass. And, and the reason being is because, number one, the, just the general intelligence level of your buyer mm -hmm in terms of real estate, not overall, but just in terms of real estate is lower, right? Mm -hmm. So little things freak them out. And the general intelligence level of your agent or of their agent, generally lower, right? Mm -hmm. So you mix a lower intelligent buyer with a lower intelligent agent. When it comes to real estate problems, what do you get? Lots of, lots of drama. Lots of drama, right? Yeah. When you start selling to wealthy people with generally the top producing agents. More sophisticated agents. More sophisticated agents. Um, and they vouch for your product, it's so much easier. It yeah. is. And and also I learned, and this was a flip we did in 2010 um, in Portland in, in uh, it was like mid 2010. We bought the house for 450, we sold it for like 800. And 800 back then in Portland was like, whoo, crazy, right? Yeah. Like it, it made me worried. Like I can't, I can't lie, I was, you know, had some sleepless nights, like do we do this thing? And we had to lever up too to get it. Like mm -hmm. I had to go get hard money and like we were paying, you know, a lot of money on the money. And so, you know, that was kind of, putting my you know what on the table and be like, we're gonna do this thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, but on the back end of that, we sold it in an hour to a lady that scratched a check for it. Mm. And this was mid 2010. Yeah, And that was, it was crazy. Um, so that taught me that the right product in the right neighborhood will sell no matter what the price point, no matter what the market. Got it. And we took that with us to this day. So for someone that's listening, what would you say are the t three keys that you've been able to do consistently as far as bringing in high profit on your flip. So when we talked about luxury, mm -hmm. but like what are some things, like three things that someone needs to master if they want to consistently do high profit flips? Um, number one is gonna be deal sourcing, right? For sure. Um, it's less of a challenge the higher up in price point you go. It's less competition. Less competition, right? But if you're good at deal sourcing, it's easier to find the A plus lots, mm -hmm. right? That's the challenge, right? Is finding enough A plus lots that you can do these high end projects on. So that's going to be um, challenge number one, let's say. And that would be taking your wholesaler skills, right? And just overlaying them onto I want to do higher end homes, right? Mm -hmm. So I need to find properties that would be a good fit for that. And so you take those same marketing skills and you just overlay it onto that type of inventory. Yeah. And so that's what we do. Um, number two is you know, recognizing like what is a good lot, right? Understanding the basics behind that. And so like a busier road, probably not a good idea, right? Yeah. Um, a flag lot, not generally a good idea. Um, neighbors next door that, you know, have a tarp or something or dogs that bark or external stuff you can't control, probably not a good idea, right? You mm -hmm. have to pay attention to these things more so. Um, so that would be a big thing. And then lastly is just, you know, you've got to know what sells. You got to know what the, what people are looking for, right? Like what's the trends, right? Mm -hmm. Like right now, you know, 
open floor plans are a big thing, right? Like having a, a great room, you know, kitchen that opens up to a living area, um, you know, that's a big thing, right? Um, what kind of finishes design? I mean, we're not supposed to know all that stuff though, but you can plug people in that do, yeah. right? But like, is your wife going on like broker tours? Is she? No, no, broker tours aren't gonna do anything for you. <laughs> so like, real, what, what is she doing to let's be? Let's be honest, realtors don't know anything about design. <laughs> let's just say that right now. So what true. is she doing to stay leading edge as um, far as what people want? I mean, she's really plugged in with like Instagram, Pinterest. Mm -hmm. um, it, like these days, you can follow other designers that are like amazing, right? At what they do or they, they resonate with you. And so she follows a lot of other people to get inspiration from them. Cause that's really all design is, right? Mm -hmm. It's just taking what you've seen other people do that you like and then recreating it. And you just have to pick wisely. But nowadays, like there's so many easy ways to find those things or mm -hmm. those people and to just basically review their content and say, wow, that's cool. And then you start seeing it over and over again. You're like, okay, that seems like it's, it's a hit. It's trending. It's trending, right? Like, yeah. you know, um, there's a lot of stuff, you know, like, for example, everybody probably knows the waterfall edge that people put on islands, right? Mm -hmm. In a kitchen, right? Well, that was a trending thing a few years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And then everybody did it. And so that's just an example. Got it. Yeah. My wife follows this lady. He's like, oh, we should do it like this. I was like, what are we even looking at right now? <laughs> yeah. It's, it, and it's, trust me, it's an expensive rabbit hole. So you might want to go delete that app on her phone real unsubscribe, quick. Unsubscribe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unsubscribe. Yeah. Um, so then I think the, the other part too, the key to doing these flips. Uh, we don't really talk a lot about on this show, but you just brought up is you got to be highly leveraged yeah. or leveraged. So A, a lot of people don't want to do high-end flips. B, a lot of people don't want to fund high-end flips. This is true. So let's talk about that challenge. Yeah, that's a challenge. Um, I will say this, like we were going to do a deal before Corona hit mm -hmm. and funding got pulled yeah. um, and we were going to lever up I went and raised three million bucks from, uh, you know, not private money, but kind of, you know, an in-between hard money and market rate company, mm -hmm. which now rates are starting to come back down, but that market disappeared, right? Yeah. Like it, it just, they were gone, right? And so they just said, we can't fund that loan anymore, right? But um, that was going to be a lender that, that, that loaned on, it was gonna be a six and a half million dollar out. That was what our exit out was gonna be. We were gonna be 3.2 million, 3 in, six and a half out. Wow. We were gonna spend about a million, two million, three in the middle. Um, and it was on a lake. It was gonna be, it was on Lake Oswego. It was gonna be an amazing house. But, um, you know, I got nervous too, because I didn't think that six and a half market would exist. Um, and, you know, we didn't have money. So that made that decision for us. But in terms of like, raising money um it's different because building versus rehabbing rehabbing you can go to hard money lenders you can go to those in-between lenders um, if you build generally out of the gate you've got two options one is you know construction financing from a bank and banks do lend more on new construction than they do rehabs they don't like rehabs because they don't understand the idea of forcing appreciation through mm -hmm. construction they do understand creating value through construction building homes but yeah. not through rehabbing them and it's this weird dynamic that i've never been able to wrap my head around but it's just the way that it they is got banking guidelines yeah That's all it is it, exactly um so there's that option but let's face it most guys aren't bankable starting out right and you know banks definitely not going to give you high-end money um you know starting out so you're left with private money more than likely but you can't just jump to the high end. And I wouldn't tell anybody to do that. I think that's where you can make your misstep. That's where you can have a $100,000 oopsie, right? Mm -hmm. That you know you end up losing a lot of money on a project. 
you have to look at the high end as like climbing, I always say this, climbing the real estate ladder, right? You start out with wholesaling, maybe you go to wholesaling, then you start light flips, then you get into moving walls, replumbing, you know, new electrical, uh, you know, lots of permits. Um, and then from there, maybe you get into an add-on, right? Or punching out dormers. Um, and then from there, you jump into new construction. So you kind of, you get comfortable, right, in that area. And then if you're comfortable there, I can tell you raising money to do high-end stuff becomes a lot easier because yeah. now you have a track record. Like if you're just a wholesaler and you're like, hey, I found this amazing lot in Paradise Valley, I wanna build a $4 million house, nobody's gonna lend you money. <laughs> They're just not gonna do it, right? It's just, right. I mean, unless you've got a sugar daddy or family member or somebody that's equally you know, excited, right? And mm -hmm. the excitement blinds them <laughs> to the opportunity, yeah. what it really is then, you know, but that's not very likely. So, you know, you gotta climb that ladder. So how are, like, who are you contacting? You know, someone, have I, someone you were talking to somebody like, man, I want to still go start go finding money. So I'll tell you what, it circles back to our local show mm -hmm. and my national show. There's a guy that, you know, I won't say who he is, but he doesn't live in our city. Heard one of those shows, reached out to me, and I and I nurtured this too. This is how I do this: is I say I don't want to take money from people right away because mm -hmm. I want them to kind of follow the business a little more, watch mm -hmm. one of our pro our, our projects from beginning to end, and then by the time they do that, they're willing to fund whatever. Yeah. Um, and so. A podcast. The podcast has been an amazing tool to raise money for our business. It really has. And you know, going back, we've been pushing earlier about you guys need to start a local podcast. That's something that uh, R.J. Bates, you know, he's talked about. He's raised way more money than he even knew what to do with mm -hmm. just from having that show. Yeah, it's an amazing form of media. It yeah. really is. So let's talk about. Um, you had a not a kind of like a side hustle, something that's come come about because your flips that you did not expect to happen. Yeah, so we talked about this on the car ride over. Um, you know, for years I swore off ever doing homeowner work mm -hmm. because my wife did it when she worked for that builder and she'd always come home just bitching and moaning about these people and like, oh my God, they're a giant pain in the ass. And like they, you know, they pick something out and they change it 13 times. Mm -hmm. and, and those are the war stories, right? Those are the things you hear. But she was also, um, you know, she was earlier on in her career as well. And so she wasn't as good at um, kind of controlling people um, mm -hmm. and making sure they don't do things to just get in their own way. Managing right? expectations. Yeah, managing expectations, things like that. And so now, um, you know, we've built an amazing brand in Portland um, and specifically in Lake Oswego with our high-end product. And so we've got people coming out of the woodwork that are like, we want you to do this work for our house. We want you to build a house for us. Um, you know, the people that bought a project that we did last year for $3.2 million, they want to move back to the lake where they lived before. They sold their house on the lake for seven and a half million, moved to our house for 3.2 million. So it was a big downsize, right? Mm -hmm. Now they wanna move back to the lake, but who do they wanna have build their house? They want us to build the house. Mm -hmm. and, and so we've had a lot of people like that, very wealthy people um, that that love our design. And, and this, my wife gets full credit for this because I haven't done anything to further that part of the brand, but she has an Instagram, it's called TTM Home Design. And so that medium has been a great way for her to daily put out content that's just purely the design side of our business, right? Mm -hmm. Nothing else, um, just the design side of our business. And so that's allowed people to not only see our stuff in person or hear about us through realtors um, in town, but then to see her on uh, Instagram as well. So people that are moving to Portland, I mean, it's just a lineup of people now reaching out to us saying, hey, we want you to do our work. And of course, we'll do the work for the stuff that's, you know, higher margin, higher price point, um, just easier people to deal with, right? Like yeah. we talked about before. And I think, you know, we were talking about high-end flips, luxury, this and that, but I would say, like, for everyone that's listening, the easiest thing to do, the podcast from you and the Instagram from your wife, it just comes down to content as far yeah. as lead gen. 
super easy, right? It's crazy. I mean, it's not. It's easy to say. It's harder to do. It's hard to execute. Yeah, it's harder to execute. But like, you don't need money no. to start a podcast. You don't need money to start posting design ideas on Instagram. No. Right. Yeah, it's crazy. Now I will say this: you have to have stick itiveness just like in this podcast oh, game, right? Like, you know, what are you, 130 episodes in yeah, about r- today? About yeah, there, yeah, roughly. Like, we're 300 and whatever episodes in, and, like, I've seen a lot of guys fall off along the way. Oh, a lot of people start. Yeah, they start, and they don't finish. You're one of those guys that you're still, you'll be going for a long time. I yeah. just know, right? Um, but you, you've got that stick to itiveness. You have to have that. So, like, if you're going to do it, just tell yourself you're going to stick to it. It's like right? direct mail. Don't start unless you're going to keep doing yeah, it. Yeah, exactly, right? Don't <laughs> stop. Don't stop. <laughs> All right, so then let's talk about the big one. 800k yeah what was that deal so that was a direct mail deal mm-hmm. um we will break it down to how we found it because i think it goes back to what we talked about here we marketed an area that was the highest value area um around portland uh an area called dunthorpe and we basically targeted vacant land in dunthorpe and then we sent a direct mail campaign to them now we sent the direct mail campaign a year and a half before we got a phone call by mm-hmm. the way um and so the individual that owned this lot, uh, which there weren't many of them, so it wasn't an expensive campaign, but we did some specialty mailers, some things to kind of stand out and be memorable. Um, the guy held on to the letter and he died. And his son pulled the letter, called us, said, I want $750,000 for this dirt. I'm gonna you know, take it to market if we can't sell it before market. I went and drove it, called him, I said, let's do it. And um, we ended up buying the dirt and uh, we had to clear it. it was, there was quite a bit of site work there, but it was, an, about an acre and a half in the most expensive part of Portland. Mm-hmm. And um, we ended up building a home there and we sold the home for $3.2 million and we had about $800,000 margin attached to it. But it started with direct mail and us targeting an area that we wanted to be in to build that high-end product. And then it just went from there. Yeah, I'm hearing a lot of intention in there. Tons, everything, everything we do is with intent, right? Yeah. Like we don't, none of the marketing that we do, none of the areas that we are in doesn't have complete intention behind it. Like literally right. our our areas, our farm areas are like etched in stone. Like the, it's, and what we market within those farm areas are etched in stone. Like we know exactly what we're going after. And like in Lake Oswego where we do most of our stuff, we have created a list of every piece of either dividable land, bare land, uh, or investment grade product in that whole town. Yeah. All of it. And that's, so we're very intentional about who we go after and why. Yeah, but that's key, right? Because a lot of people, you know, like life just kind of happens to you. Yeah. And you can't let that happen. You have to be intentional. You yeah. have to control your destiny. Uh, let's see. Got some questions here. <laughs> Kilduce, I don't know if you know who that is. Wants to know what's the name of your intro song for the Portland podcast? Uh, hold on. I'm coming. <laughs> uh, I don't know who sings that. I forget. I picked it, but I should know the name. But uh, yeah. And then uh, Isaac Avalos, you already talked about it, but what part of Oregon do you buy in again? So we, we used to buy, as we talked about, all over the Portland metro area, and mm-hmm. we've um, since trimmed it down. We're really just in Lake Oswego and Westland now. That's where we do, I'd say, everything. Got it. And John Robson is asking a question, maybe the million-dollar question is, what qualifies as an A-plus lot? Mm. It's tough to give you like an in-the-box answer for that mm-hmm. because it takes time to recognize that. I can give you some general pointers, right? Like busier road, like we talked about, is a no-fly zone, right? Um, It may be even like an entry corner into a neighborhood where you get a lot of traffic, no-fly zone. Flag lots, 
generally people are going to pay less for a flag lot. What's a flag lot? So a flag lot is like, let's say you've got road frontage, right? And then you've got a house that sits right on the road frontage. And mm -hmm. then there's a lot behind that house, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of houses are, or lots are deep and you can divide off the back part of that lot. But then you got to put a driveway to the left or right uh, of that house. Yeah. yeah. And so they either have an easement or they deed that dirt to that, to the lot behind them, right? Mm -hmm. Generally it's an easement. Um, but a lot of people don't like to drive by another house to get to their house, yeah. right? Um, so you could look at a lot that's in a high end area and be like, ooh, we could build a house here and sell it for this, but you're gonna have to probably take 10% off the price, maybe even a little more, depending mm. on how bad that flag lot is. Got it, got it. All right, guys, keep you know firing away. Please ask your questions. Uh, so we also talked about, when we were talking about earlier, you know, wholesaling versus flipping. You also like to flip because there's multiple people that you get to feed yeah. along the way. I mean, I think that's an important point um, because we've vertically integrated a lot of businesses into um, the start of it is is the marketing machine, right? Mm -hmm. And the marketing for, for deals. And a lot of people, they build that machine or they start marketing and then they wanna take the first exit ramp, which is like, get the deal under contract, sell it right away, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the end of the business. With nothing wrong with that. Um, but for us, we have the marketing machine that starts it. And then from there we have lending, right? So mm -hmm. people make money lending us money. Um, and the more money you make for people, by the way, the more money they want to lend you, right? So you have to nurture those relationships and allow them to put money at play in play. And if you do that, they eventually put more money in play, and it's a way to kind of build your war chest of of you know private capital. Mm -hmm. um, we have my wife um, who does all of our construction management design, so she has her own company that you know on the books anyway that we pay, but she operates under TTM Home Design. Um, we have a built-in real estate company that sells all of our stuff, which is TTM Realty. Chris, who's our we always joke, he's you know the uh, agent at TTM Realty because he's the only agent at TTM Realty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, he sells most of our stuff. Um, so, you know, he benefits from everything that runs through the system. Uh, we've got, you know, multiple laborers that, um, you know, we carry full time for kind of in between labor and things like that. So they're jobs that we keep and retain um, by push, pushing stuff all the way through the system. So we've kind of built this this vertically integrated machine. It's that, a little mini economy. Yeah, it's a mini economy. I mean, and that's what a rehab is, right? You do yeah. a rehab and like, even if you hire a GC, you have all these people working on it, it is a miniature economy. Um, yeah. But we have that plus, you know, under one roof, kind of our miniature economy as well. And so to run your business, like what kind of overhead do you have? Um, it's, Let's see, we've got rent, right? Um, mm -hmm. We got a new space. I don't think we're paying as much as you, but we're paying you know, more than we were before. Um, we were in the same space before we were paying like, guy never raised rent on us. We were paying like $1,200 a month. Oh man. And it was, but you know, it was C minus class office space, but we had enough you know, room and it worked out well. And when we were buying in Portland, it, it made sense. Um, so we moved to um, Lake Oswego and what are we paying? Like 2,200 a month now for rent, um, but it's a great, a minute from my house and yeah. it overlooks the main drag that it's like and we got two billboards out of the deal right oh. so like we're the top floor and so there's two, the building faces two ways when traffic comes and goes and so they let me put up a big ttm sign on both things so i'm That's like awesome. i got office space and a billboard which you know can't complain about that um so we have that Chris, who's our office manager, um basically you know a lot of people have like lead intake people and they have acquisitions people right Chris Dubs is both of those. Mm -hmm. um, plus, he's our agent on the other end. Um, so he, you know, there's built-in costs for him every month. Um, you know, then we have, you know, the whole other side of the business as well, which Dan, you know, he's a full-time guy for me. Um, that you know, he helps with the app, he helps with our online uh, mastermind group, he helps with all of our video. 
I mean, any videos you watch of us, um, any, you know, audio you hear, Dan has to touch it and bless it and make it pretty before yeah. it goes out. Um, you know, so there's a, there's a fair bit of overhead um, for sure, but we've also got a lot of continuity that we built into the businesses, um, you know, that we built to kind of help offset the, call it the stress of, of overhead, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah. we're generally a pretty low overhead operation. For like overall, like ballpark? Ballpark, you know, 10 grand. Um, oh, that's really yeah, low. Yeah, but, but that's before we're spending marketing costs, right? Okay. Yeah. So what are you in marketing? So marketing, we're, our universe of people that we can market to is fairly small now, but we're probably in the two to $3,000 a month range. Wow, um, also really low. Yeah, also really low. Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, I see some stuff that you post. You're, there's a lake, some trees. What's that? What's going on there? So that's Lake Oswego, right? Okay. Um, waterfront real estate, baby. That's, yeah. uh, I mean, that's water and views is a great way to insulate prices from, you know, major declines mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, less demand, right? But that's for you, that's a plan. Uh, well, we live, I live in Lake Oswego. I have for, um, you know, and that's something we haven't touched on, but like, you know, I built the last three houses we lived in. Mm -hmm. We find the land, we build the house, I buy it from the business at cost, we move into it for two or three years, and then we sell it, and then we move into the next one. And we mm -hmm. do that over and over again. And those are my favorite years because you make up to half a million bucks tax-free, which is yeah. basically like making a million bucks in Oregon um, you know, and being taxed. Yeah. Um, but we've been doing that and kind of moving around like us. We go for the last, I mean, I've been in there for 12 years now, so. That's awesome, another way to build wealth tax-free. Yeah. Yeah, it's the house hack before the house hack, except we build them now because the margins are bigger on the other end when you yeah, sell them. Yeah, no, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, let's see what else is there. How does a how does a wholesaler find a developer like you to to get your buy box? Like how well how would a wholesaler find someone like you? Um, well, here's the thing: most developers and builders need you, right? Mm -hmm. Most of them don't have a marketing machine. I would say virtually all of. Them. I mean, we're a very niche hybrid company in that we have a marketing machine. Most mm -hmm. of them don't. They need you as bad as you need them. Um, so, I mean, we're pretty easy to find, right? We have a big brand and online presence. Uh, if you're doing uh, D for D or driving for dollars, you know, you go drive around these neighborhoods, you're going to see who's building in those neighborhoods, right? Just, I don't know, call them up, talk to mm -hmm. them. They'll tell you exactly like how much they're buying lots for in those areas. And then all you got to do is go find the crappy houses that you can pay them market value for the square footage of that house. And it's really undervalued compared to the value of the dirt. Make the money in the middle, connect the dots. There you go. Uh, so Claudio wants to know, uh, at what kind of discount does it make sense to acquire a wholesale deal for a home in the million dollar plus range? So I guess probably question is, you know, maybe an ARV, some sort of formula. Cost of capital is such a big part of that yeah. um, as you go up, but um, it de it really depends on how much work is going to be needed. It's it's such a very it varies so much, but you know generally you want to have we try and hold a, at least a twenty percent margin on the sell, right? Um, so whatever we're in it by, um, you know construction selling costs, you know we try and hold at least a twenty percent margin, and most of our stuff is closer to thirty, but um, you know twenty is a minimum for us. It's really big. Yeah, but there's less people playing in that world, right? Yeah. And that's why we're there. I know, but it's 20% of a bigger number. It is, like we talked about car earlier. 20% <laughs> of a lot is a lot, right? You know? Yeah. yeah. And most guys are shooting for like 9% of a smaller number. Yeah, which is crazy to me. But eventually everybody kind of graduates to wanting to do more, yeah. bigger numbers. And Isaac wants to know, how's the market in uh, Bend and Tagard? Um, so Bend is like, I love Bend. It's been, if I was going to move from Portland, um, which I may, um, Bend is very high on the list. Um, mm -hmm. Paradise Valley is also very high on the list. Um, you yeah. know, I've spent some time there and probably some parts of Scottsdale, but, um, Bend is, 
it's an awesome place. It, but it got hit real hard, just like Phoenix in the real estate apocalypse. Yeah. And the reason being is because it didn't have it didn't have enough economy, right? It was based on tourism. There wasn't a lot of real jobs there, a lot of real high paying jobs. Now it's changed a lot. Um, there's a lot of companies that have hubs there, that have remote workers there, that are much higher paid people that love the lifestyle of living there. Mm -hmm. And so that town has grown up a lot. And so I think that, you know, inevitably the, we're gonna go through a market cycle, market will soften. I don't think it's gonna soften there nearly as much as it did before. Um, so I think it's a pretty well-protected market. And if you ever go there, it's, it's an amazing place. I mean, it's 20 minutes to Mount Bachelor and it's high desert. It's sunshine and snow. I mean, it's, and you got the Deschutes River. It runs right through downtown, tons yeah. of breweries. It's tough to say you don't like Ben, that's for sure. Yeah, very cool. Uh, and then Bernard Mack wants to know, he bought your flipping teardowns product. Do you think that strategy still works in this market? If not, what tweaks would you need to make? Um, it works. When we first came out with that, it was probably three or four years ago, Bernard. Mm -hmm. um, and the only difference was there was just less competition, right? That That's really what it comes down to. And the other thing was, is back then, owners of property weren't quite as privy to what their dirt was worth. They only knew what their house was worth. Mm -hmm. And so the biggest opportunity zones um, with flipping teardowns, I always equate it to like a, a baseball game, right? At what inning is that market in, right? And as mm -hmm. you get closer to seven, eight, nine, um, the owners realize that the value of the dirt has eclipsed the value of their structure. Mm -hmm. When you're in the earlier innings, um, which is basically gentrification, improvement of areas, um, a lot of owners don't know that. And so if you can buy based on the structure value, not on the dirt value, that's where the most opportunity is. And so to answer your question, it's more difficult than it was um, across the board, no question. But if you can identify those areas that are in the earlier innings, because there's always areas in those earlier innings, mm -hmm. um, that's where the most opportunity is for you to market for those types of, of product. Justin Baker says hi. What's up, Justin? Uh, so along your journey, do you have a favorite, best, or most interesting failure? Ooh, yeah, I probably got a lot of them. Um, let's see. Most interesting failure, getting to know this tech world, building out um, app has been like, I don't even know if it's interesting, but I mean, we dropped 70 grand on a real shithead developer mm -hmm. that it was like, oh my God, we just spent $70,000 and this guy delivered us crap. Like mm -hmm. that was a, that one hurt. Like it was, I still remember where, I, I mean, yeah, you remember moments in life, right? And yeah. that was one of the moments that I was like, we got to rebuild this whole thing, right? And um, it's like getting a building out a, a, a really nice kitchen with a crappy contractor. Yeah, you have to tear it all down. Yeah, you can't. Same fix thing. It. Yeah, same thing. <laughs> um, you know, there there was another failure that I had that um, it turned into a. a a good moment, right? Mm -hmm. Which I think is important to say those two. Um, yeah. You know, the first new construction home we ever did, I bought a house that we were gonna rehab and the foundation, it had major foundation problems and we got a bid to fix the foundation problems and we had to put like 18 piers in the ground. And this was like 2010, 2011. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, well, besides the fact that the bid was just egregiously priced, I mean, it was like, oh my God, like there goes all our profit and mm -hmm. we're losing money, right? Yeah. I was like, now we got to sell a house that has 18 piers in the ground in 2010, 2011. Like that seems like a tall order. Like that mm -hmm. might be tough to get somebody to sign off on that and say, I'm, a, you know, it's okay. Um, nowadays it's a little different, but then, you know, it was challenging. So I made the decision back then. I basically failed at buying the house, right? Mm -hmm. I, I paid too much for the house. Um, and so I was like, well, what can we do? I was like, well, we could knock it down and we could try and build a new house there, but now we're gonna be trying to enter the market at a whole new price point. Mm -hmm. And so I, 
I failed at not buying that house for cheap enough to flip that house. Uh, but it ended up being kind of a, a great inflection point in the company because it forced me then to go down the path of building new construction. Hmm. And so we put that, we ended up putting that house out, I think at like 650, 700,000, which then again, it was super expensive for that area. That same house sold for like 900 two years ago. Hmm. Um, so the area has changed a lot since then, but that was a failure moment that actually, um, you know, they, they say you learn or you earn, right? And so that one I actually earned and I learned. Um, okay but that was a failure moment that I turned into something positive. Uh, what's your biggest struggle right now? Biggest struggle right now is probably, how do you have six different balls in the air, right? How do you run multiple businesses? I mean, we talked about this on the way over too. Like, you know, we had a lot of really good conversation, but one of them was, you know, people want to get into the coaching model, right? Mm -hmm. Because it sounds it sounds great, yeah. um, and we can make all this money, and you know, gurus have Lambos, and you know, all that, right? Which I drive at Tacoma, and I love it, right? Mm -hmm. But you, you know, some guys can they can afford it. But here's the thing: you start that business, you have to make sure it's a good business, you have right? To service it. You have to service it, and you have to have client retention and client success, and that's a lot of work. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you can't just, you can be good at the marketing side of it. And some guy, I've seen a lot of guys come and go, right? In, in the coaching game, because they're really good marketers, terrible business owners mm -hmm. or terrible, you know, at client retention and client servicing. And so, and then they get a bad rap and then they, you know, disappear, you know, yeah. and that's the way it works. And so the, the challenge is for me right now, how do we actually be really good at real estate and also be really good at coaching? Yeah. Right and running an education and content business. And we're doing it, but it's gonna be forever a challenge because they both take so much from you. Yeah, yeah, it's, they're both full-time businesses. Yeah. And then on the flip side of that, what is your superpower? The fact that I can do a lot of things. Um, yeah. You know, I, I've, I've learned this about myself and you know, you've probably done the same, you know, as, we, as you get farther into this journey of, you know, life, but also entrepreneurship, you start to know what makes you tick, right? And like, what makes you happy? What makes you unhappy? And and the moment that I realized that like, number one, I can only go on vacation for like a week because after that, I'm just like, I got to do something, right? Like, you know, and that's a normal entrepreneur. Um, yeah, my wife hates that about me. Yeah. Like and, three days max. Yeah, three, and really it's three days, right? <laughs> three days in Cabo and like, I want to get back home. You yeah. know, like it's it's been fun. I had a good time, but like, it's time to get back and do yeah. something. And so. I'm a builder, right? I have to be building something, um, whatever that is. I can't just sit idle. And so my happiest time, to, for me to be the happiest, I think this is a good life lesson for everybody, right? I think, I think the most unhappy people are idle people, right? Mm -hmm. And so building something, whatever it is, um, is what makes me happy. And so that's why we've piled on all these other businesses, but I, I am good at juggling them and putting adequate time into all of them and, and making them all good businesses. But that also gives me a lot of enjoyment, right? Like, yeah. like that's, that's where I get my most happiness from, you know, at least on the professional side. Yeah. We need to get you like a master builder shirt uh, from like the Lego movie. Yeah. Although I know you could scratch it out and write something else on there if you really want it to be funny, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> um, is there a book you've gifted more than any other? Um, yeah, there's one that I always talk about, which I think is super important. I, it, it gets said a lot, um, but it's really the secret to the real estate business. Um, it's the secret to life, really, which is how to win friends and influence people, mm -hmm. right? It's especially in the real estate business if you're going direct to seller, right? Because we're in a world, if you have agents in the middle, it removes the human element, right? It's just purely numbers and you know, getting to know somebody is irrelevant. Um, but as you go meet with people and you put deals together directly with homeowners, the human element is very much alive. And so 
figuring out how to connect with people, how to get them to know, like, and trust you. Like, for example, before I left here to come, um, you know, the last phone call that I had Monday night before I hopped on the plane Tuesday morning was with a gal who owns a piece of property on Lake Oswego. She's owned it for 60 years, right? And like to buy property on the water is like, they rarely ever come up for sale, right? Mm -hmm. Especially these old time ones that are redevelopment plays. Like everybody will buy them, nobody can, and you just wait for people to die and that's when the opportunity comes up, Mm -hmm. right? But I went and met with this woman a couple weeks ago I knew she wasn't quite ready to sell, but I went and met with her myself because I knew she wanted to meet with somebody that knew more about the property than just an acquisitions person I could send, right? Knew yeah. more about values, redevelopment, all that, which which came through. But she had a problem. She didn't know, you know, they were building a house next door to her and she had a property line issue. And she also didn't know if she had easement for the driveway that came to her house. And so I helped her solve those problems, right? And basically come to the conclusion she was wrong about the property line, which I knew she was, mm-hmm. and that she didn't have an easement for the driveway, right? Um, both of which confirm the fact that she wants to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, but she called on uh, Monday before I left and she's like, look, I've got you know all these agents that want to come over. They say they got people that want to buy it. But she's like, I talked to you. I like you. You seem to make this business really simple. You know, do you want to buy this house? And I was like, look, I'm going to see Steve. <laughs> I'm going to Phoenix. I'll be back on Friday. I'll call you. We'll come sit down and we'll do it or try and put something together, right? Yeah. And um, you know, that just goes back to the point of, it's just, it's a people business, right? And so just knowing how to, con- I mean, this lady's 93, like I, it's not like she's in my friendship circle and like we hang out and, you know, row down, like, yeah. but the the skill set is just, you know, making people feel comfortable with you uh, across the spectrum, right? And so I, I think that's the most important book because it's just an overarching skill set of, of how to be good with people. Yeah, awesome. Um, if anyone's got any teenage daughters, don't buy the one for teenage girls or at least younger than teenage bought that one for my daughter yeah that no, was a bad idea no bueno huh yeah. no that's not a good one okay uh okay so i'm gonna make a few quick announcements i'll let you th- think about some last thoughts uh guys if you guys got value please like subscribe share or comment that helps me get these videos in front of more people right it's the algorithms i wouldn't ask you guys to do it if it didn't help more people um and like i said we got that classroom built out tucker got to check it out a moment ago if you guys want to come to our next class, apply at disruptors.com. And next week, we've got Tyler Austin coming in from Florida. So tune in, same time, Wednesday, 2 o'clock uh, Pacific, 5 o'clock Eastern. Last thoughts. Last thoughts. It's a weird world we live in this year. <laughs> it's a weird world. <laughs> yeah. It's a weird world. And I feel like, uh, you know, with Billy May, it's like, but wait. But wait, there's more. There's more. Yeah, just wait. We're not done yet, folks. Yeah. yeah. Keep an eye on that news. Watch Portland. Yeah. But, uh, and if someone wanted to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to do that? Let's see. Best way, um, obviously, you can check out my show um, or the uh, Real Deals podcast for most of the people that are listening. If you're local, you can check out the, the local show, which is the Portland Real Estate Podcast. Um, mm-hmm. You can find me on social. Um, that's a good way also. Um, you know, I'm. You know, I, I answer most people that message me just because, you know, you're nice enough to send me a message and you watch the content or whatever. I'll try and answer you. Yeah. Um, Facebook, Instagram, just search my name. You can find me. Um, but I, I'm pretty easy to find. You can track me down if you want to. Awesome. Very cool. And then Tucker didn't say this, but he probably meant to say this is that the episode that we did together is probably his best episode. Absolutely. I think it had the most <laughs> downloads. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys for watching. Thank you. Thank it you was much. A pleasure. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, see we real estate disruptors, can't nobody touch us, and yeah we about to give you game, shout out to Steve Train.
real estate disruptors They cannot touch us And yeah, we about to give you game Shout out to Steve Train Jump on the Steve Train We about to give you game R.E.I.'s flowing through my veins And you don't... Yeah, see we real estate disruptors. 